Hi, my name's Lauren, and you're listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Penny Weiss in conversation with Lauren Forbes. Good morning. My name is Lauren Forbes. I'm a PhD student here at Penn. My research is on early modern philosophy, specifically the work of women writing in the early modern period. So I'm really happy to say that I'm here today with Professor Penny Weiss of Political Science and Women's and Gender Studies at St. Louis University. Penny is an eminent scholar in a range of women and questions in the history of Western thought. Welcome to Penn. Thank you so much. So let's start thinking about um, some feminist epistemology and some questions therein. So one of the things that I'm really interested in in my own work are the social conditions of knowledge, protection, and reception. So for example, I think we find really clear examples of women in the 17th and 18th centuries who understand the phenomenon of what we would these days call epistemic injustice for the sake of clarity. What I mean by that is something like the ways in which people's capacities as epistemic agents can be undermined, whether people take them seriously when they offer information, whether they're able to know things about themselves and about the world that they're in. So I wanted to know, is this something that you have come across in your own research? And maybe could you give some examples of women in history? who've been attuned to those kinds of questions uh, in what we would now call feminist epistemology? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I'm going to talk about later this afternoon, in my experience, every historical woman who wrote philosophically had to confront the dismissal of herself and other women as credible as knowers. They had to deal with it in their life, and they had to deal with it in their writing. And I think that 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 reality directed them to a whole host of related questions. So they're going to ask, what does it mean to be a knower? Who is ignorant? Um, On what grounds? Who decides that? Why are there so many obstacles to learning for so many different groups of people and obstacles to being learned? Whose interests are served by this? So, you know, who is dismissed as knowers? Like, what patterns do we see there? And what might those people actually know? I think that when you look for it, you can find all sorts of talk in our philosophical foremothers about silencing and marginalization and delegitimization, how it happens, what the costs of it are, how you're enabled to persist despite it. So I almost haven't encountered a historical theorist that hasn't had to grapple with this to some extent. Right. That's really exciting. Yeah. So how can we bring that thought forward now without worrying about claims that people might make about being a historical or something like that? Like, how do we engage in this recovery and, and make these points clear without worrying about bringing something contemporary backwards? Just so I'm clear, your concern is sort of that we're putting feminist clothes on people who existed before we had feminist movements. Right. Is that, yeah. Yeah. So one thing that people have said to me sometimes about my work is that, well, maybe it's unfair for you to say that they're engaging in a feminist project. Maybe they wouldn't have called themselves feminists if that word had existed at the time. Or maybe we're doing something ahistorical and unfair by saying, well, actually, they're thinking about these things that we have words for now that they didn't have words for then. So I have to say I'm a little um, sort of suspicious of the charge that it sounds to me like another way to dismiss somebody's work rather than wrestling with the substance of it. And so I tend to sidestep that conversation for the most part. I mean, you have things like Mary Estelle signing her work as by a lover of her sex in a period that was probably more misogynistic even than ours. So there couldn't be a more oppositional stance to the patriarchal status quo than to declare oneself a lover of women in that sense. If you only identify feminism 
feminism with some certain narrow either preconception of what it stands for or some image of women marching in the streets in tens of thousands of people, then it's anachronistic. But if you see feminism as being opposed to domination and oppression, then it couldn't be any clearer that these women were advocates of respect and voice and dignity and opportunity for people that had been denied all of those things. And for me, that's all that I need. I mean, I think they saw themselves very actively countering the dominant way of looking at women. It certainly seems clear to me that if you're in an experience where you're being oppressed, then you're going to be thinking about oppression. And having the label itself doesn't seem like a necessary condition to say that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no question that we have vocabulary now that they didn't have then, both to capture the oppression of women and to capture liberation of peoples. So, you know, to capture the oppression, they didn't have terms like sexual harassment or rape culture or things like that and in or epistemologies of ignorance. And they didn't have things like epistemic injustice. But can that be a useful way of capturing what they said? Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, by delegitimizing them as participants in that conversation, what we do is contribute to the erasure of our history. Right. So do you think that that explains why many women writing in the early modern period and throughout history have focused so much on education, in part to combat the kinds of erasure and silencing that they were experiencing in their lives, not simply from an intellectual, they want to know more and participate in knowledge production in a standard sense, but in a personal, they've personally been undermined in very important fundamental ways. Right. So I think they look at education for a couple of reasons. One is to understand how we got to inequality. That unequal, the role that unequal educations have played in creating inequality. So they've analyzed who's been educated, in what way, by whom, for what ends, historically. And that has explained a lot of the differences between groups of people. And then they've looked at a reformed education as a path to change. So again, who gets to learn? What are they learning? For what purposes? Who's doing the teaching? All of those are absolutely critical questions. And I think they also look at education because in both the history of philosophy and in the history of political thought, that's been a central concern. How do we build, create, nurture um, members of the next generation? What are we, you know, what are we educating them for and into? So as participants in the conversation that is the history of social thought, they have to confront that question that makes them sort of mainstream in that way. So let me ask you what you think we should be educating the next generation of scholars and various kinds of uh, academics, intellectuals. What do you think we should be teaching them and who do you think should be teaching them? So I had the wonderful opportunity when my kids were young to participate in the establishment of an alternative preschool and elementary school that I also got to teach at for a couple of years. And it enabled me to interact with a whole community of both learners and parents that were setting up the school in terms of what they needed to learn, what they could learn, how we um, created an environment where students were active learners deciding what they wanted to know and how to get there. And it gave me enormous respect for children as learners and as teachers of one another, and even of me as their teacher, how much we learned together. And I think we can model in the classroom a lot of what we hope that young people have at their disposal when they leave education. So if we want to educate for a democracy, our classrooms should be more democratic. If we want to educate for an egalitarian culture, then we need to be engaging in practices in the classroom from how we treat one another to whose voices we're studying that, in fact, create a more inclusive environment. So, yeah, absolutely, both what we're studying and how we're studying it cultivate the next generation 
representation of citizens. Yeah, it seems to me like maybe that's something that's going on in Estelle's work. So she talks a lot about friendship and uh, the role of friends to support and correct one another, not just in their moral activities, but in their intellectual activities too. So perhaps she had a a similar idea there. Right. And it's uh, quite a departure from what happens in the average classroom where you sit in a desk and you imbibe whatever the teacher is presenting to you and talking to one another. You get sent to the principal's office for doing that. So there's not collaborative learning. There's not two-way learning. We're not teaching respect for the individual mind that I think Estelle wanted. And the role that relationships among learners play in Estelle is something that we absolutely could learn from more. So do you think that there are maybe some lessons in Estelle and other women in the history of philosophy and political thought for us in our classrooms now in contemporary universities, but how we should approach learning collaboratively and democratically? I think that one of the things I'm working on in my current book project is how the same tools and terms that feminist historical figures use to critique the authority of men over women, they also use to critique the power of adults over children. And I find that in a number of historical theorists from Mary Wollstonecraft to Elizabeth Cady Stanton to Francis Wright to Simone de Beauvoir, like it's a consistent theme across there that egalitarian relationships need to start from the adult-child relationship. Well, even though that's a relationship between unequals in some way, it still is a relationship where both parties need to have a voice and both parties need to be treated with respect and dignity. And so I think that's one of the lessons of our feminist theoretical foremothers that has really been lost to us, that critique and the notion of a more active participatory education where you're creating not people who have memorized things, but who know how to think critically, especially about an inegalitarian, unequal society that they live in. Right. Yeah. So especially for someone like Wollstonecraft, I imagine she experienced a whole host of kinds of oppression. And certainly as a a mother herself, that would be one relationship where she could learn from someone and teach someone in a... Right. Yeah, there's this beautiful sentence in Francis Wright, who, although born in Scotland, lived mostly in America, who uh, said that we should look at parenting not only as an opportunity to create critical thinking in our children, but for parents to go through that process with them and become more critical learners themselves. Yeah, I thought that was just beautiful. That is a beautiful sentiment. Certainly nothing will teach you quite like having a child around. Yeah, but it requires letting go of a certain kind of arrogance that because we're older, we know better, or because we're male, we know more, and practicing some epistemic humility. Right. Which, and especially in adult-child relationships, um, we are not wont to do. Right, because, of course, we've lived longer, we know more, but we don't necessarily know all the things that there are to know. And we don't know what they know. And we need their information, even in order to work better with them, no less to learn more about our own lives and the world that we inhabit. So that's really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about how this kind of, this research and this project you're working on now, has that translated directly to practices within your own classrooms? Um, So I've done work on democracy in the classroom for a number of years. I've done some training of elementary school teachers on democracy in the classroom. And, um, you know, I was a little stunned at first at the strength of their resistance to that, their very strong sense that that their authority over their students was the source of whatever order existed. And so to let go of that was just equated with chaos for them. And that's something that some of our philosophical foremothers wrote about, whether Charlotte Perkins Gilman wrote about that beautifully, about how we're so afraid of chaos 
that we don't see all of the vast area in between that and authoritarian treatment of children. Yeah, Emma Goldman wrote about that too, like what it meant to, to give children more more voice in their education and their growing up. Now I've forgotten what you asked me. Uh, about how your research has translated into... Oh, so, so yeah, in my own class, I think letting go of the fear of chaos is something that we need to do as educators and to trust the process a little more, both as parents and as educators, that it's all going to be okay if we, you know, share the questions ahead of time that we think are going to frame the discussion and invite them to submit their questions that they'd like for discussion as well so that we co-constitute the curriculum for each day that we can ask them who they would like to read in addition to some ones that we suggest as being more knowledgeable in the field than they are. Yeah, teaching them because we don't learn this before we get to college, what it means to have good discussion, which doesn't mean just talking, also means listening. It means building on each other. I try to introduce the notion of feminist citizenship as the model for how we act in the classroom so that, and I invite them to think about what that might mean on the first day of class. So what does that mean about our obligations to ourselves as learners? What does it mean to our obligations to each other as part of an intellectual community in the classroom? What does it mean about their obligations to me as their instructor? What does it mean about mine to them? And so like to sit down, you know, and spend a few minutes talking about the process and the structure of the classroom together is something that they might not have done before, but that I think our philosophical foremothers would be very pleased to see happening. So I just want to pick up on something that, that has emerged from what you've been saying here about the lesson of epistemic humility that comes from our foremothers and also on the concept of epistemic authority and especially teachers in the more standard sense worrying that changing things up and allowing this kind of democratic participation from their students is going to undermine that authority over them and presumably their epistemic authority or how much they know about the material. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you a little story about something I did in my own class last semester uh, and I think that maybe you can tell me how that's going to uh, shape up to feminist citizenship. So last semester I had the opportunity to teach my own class. It was an introduction to philosophy course uh, but it was themed philosophy and technology. So the idea was we would address some of the sort of standard traditional questions and topics in an intro to philosophy class across metaphysics, epistemology, value theory, but we did it in, in an unusual way. And that is halfway through the class, we sat down and we revised the syllabus together. So the students had the opportunity to tell me what kinds of technological issues they wanted to address. And so we revamped the syllabus in order to reflect that because, as I said to them, I know a lot more about philosophy than you do, but I don't know more about what gets you excited about philosophy. And this is something that mm -hmm. we should all be nice. engaging in together. And then at the end of the course, the students uh, submitted questions for the exam. So we co-constructed the exam together. And so everyone knew the answers to the questions that they'd submitted, and they were under instruction not to share the questions with other <laughs> students. I think we were successful in that, so that's good. But in that way, uh, I wanted to create a, a space where we could learn from each other, where we could get excited about things together. And I guess I'm wondering how you think that that maps onto feminist citizenship and democratic classrooms, and if that's something that Mary Wollstonecraft herself would be pleased about. Yeah. I think um, it's a lovely example of letting go of traditional forms of authority in the classroom, that we show that we know more traditionally two ways. One is by 
having total control over the structure of the class. And then the second way is within each class, being the lecturer. I know everything you need to know, so I'm going to impart it to you. And so it can be tricky letting go of that from both parties' points of view. We went to school for a lot of years to have the knowledge to, you know, show off in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And in many disciplines, we show that off by talking more and faster and deeper and, you know, whatever. And students can be resistant to it because by the time they get to college, they are quite passive learners. And they also often evaluate their instructors in some ways based on how authoritative they seem. And they'll even ask questions like on course evaluations, like rate from one to five, your professor's knowledge of the material. And how do most of us demonstrate that is by lecturing about it, not by sharing knowledge or creating knowledge together. And so even some of the ways we evaluate things are built on an old model of instructors. But yeah, I think that, you know, for those who have more power and privilege, what people like Wollstonecraft would say is that not only are those on the bottom trying to gain a foot up, but those on the top also need to step down. Right. So maybe there's a lesson there about epistemic authority being fragile and hard won, especially for marginalized groups, but that it's not nearly as fragile as we worry. And so we can relinquish it or exercise it in new and different ways. I think that's really well said. I think we, some of us fought very hard for that, and it does feel fragile. We were undermined at many steps along the way. And then to sort of give up what precious little authority we do have by saying, oh, you can call me by my first name or we'll talk together about what we're going to learn is to run, you know, can feel like you're running the risk of losing even more or, you know, recreating yourself in the position on the bottom. But you're not. You're doing something much more liberatory and exciting and much more educationally sound. Okay. So with this in mind, I'd like to ask you what kinds of lessons you think that we should draw from this and going forward in the discipline of philosophy. So one of the problems that we have is we have a pipeline problem in philosophy, and that is, well, we start out with lots of women in uh, undergraduate, especially freshman classes, and other marginalized groups or groups that aren't traditionally represented in philosophy syllabi. Over time, as we progress through the years of undergraduate and through graduate school and then in professional philosophy, we lose a lot of those people along the way. And so many of us are now thinking about how we can improve things for philosophy, both as the discipline and as practitioners of it. So what kinds of things do you think we should do now to revise our discipline, to improve it, to better reflect the people who are interested in it and who have shaped the history of it? Right. And even to create more people who have an interest in it, because um, some come with that interest, but some don't know that I didn't know until it was tapped by a required course how much I was going to fall in love with political theory. So I think the kinds of things that we were just talking about where students are treated as knowers and learners is one step to creating students who might want to go on and who feel themselves competent enough to go on. I think a curriculum that includes a wider variety of voices and questions and concerns so that you find yourself and your questions in the text that you're reading makes it feel like a place that you belong. When I was first studying philosophy, I felt like I kept having to like contort myself to find myself. So when they talked about what the good man was like and how he treated his wife, I was like, so that means I'm not capable of being good or is it just the same for a good woman and a good wife and like you know and we can do better than that i think there's also mentoring practices that need to be looked at i think there's an old model of mentoring that was done by some people for certain other people and the idea was to make 
more use, you know, recreate you in the next generation. And I think mentoring instead that nurtures the student's own interests rather than tries to replicate yours also invites more people to find a home for themselves in these disciplines. Yeah, I guess those are my initial thoughts. If you had to pick one figure from the history of philosophy and political thought that had to appear in these classes in part to answer questions like that to help people see themselves more in in the classes, who would you choose? Thanks a lot. Now, like, I see all my friends arrayed in front of me going, pick me, pick me. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All right. I'm going to make a choice here. And it's in some ways an unusual one for me, even though she's somebody that I do write about a little bit. I'm I'm going to pick Christine Tibisan and and my reason for doing that. So so she wrote around 1400-ish in a whole variety of formats from uh, poetry to treatises to allegories. And the reason that I pick her is that she directly asks questions of the status quo and allows a variety of answers to be given to them. And so that I think that she both asks the questions that a lot of students come in with, but maybe haven't seen articulated that well. Like, you know, like, how did we end up so equal? Well, they say they didn't do it for bad reasons. They said they did it because, you know, X, Y, and Z. Her characters ask all those questions and then they get answered. And she says, yeah, well, that's kind of a good answer, but I still wonder this. And I think so it's both an opportunity to get some questions answered, but it's also a model for how to have civil discussion about really difficult conversations. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, I think I would have said Mary Estelle. Yeah. Uh, but you you know why I would Why would, say would you that. have picked her? Oh, because, uh, because she's very sassy. She uh, and that was a meaningful moment for me to read someone like that who did philosophy clearly, but in a radically different way. Yeah. Uh, someone who would say sassy things in a philosophical treatise that's trying to get you to be persuaded by her reasoning. That's someone for me. Um, I have to agree <laughs> that before I was drawn to the content of what she said, her sarcasm just won me over. I just couldn't believe the tone in which she wrote, and it was so enticing. And it, it too, is both form and content. So content-wise, what she says in that tone is so amazing, so biting, so deep and concise, but also that you can talk that way is, form-wise, is an invitation for a variety of ways of speaking and being a participant. Well, I I think we have to tie things up, but I'd just like to say thank you so much for... Oh, Lauren, it's been a pleasure. (laughs) Oh, good, good. Thank you so much, and I look forward to chatting to you again in the future. Thank you for listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. The New Narratives Project and podcast are funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. In the spirit of the project, the music for the podcast is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jacquette de la Guerre Sonana No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bizarrid Amonish. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website newnarrativesinphilosophy.net and follow us on Facebook. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.